Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, a subject that you might be familiar with. These are things that um, are very close to our identity as a church and uh, the things that we believe as a church. Um, and the title of this uh, class is A Sovereign and Personal God. And as you know, the, the series has been on prayer, specifically Pauline prayers. Um, but the subject, the, the subcategory, the subject is uh, praying to a God who is sovereign and a God who is, is also personal. And it's a controversial subject because intuitively um, it's hard for us to really reconcile um, the fact that every day we make decisions, every day we uh, participate in uh, decision making or some sort of action that can alter the future, our fate. Um, you make career decisions, uh, you make decisions about um, things in your home. Uh, at some point, you made a decision about whether or not you would marry this specific person. Um, and in that human experience, you get the sense that you are absolutely free, that, there, that the, your will is always making decisions uh, that, that rests on the basis of a kind of free will uh, that is absolutely autonomous from a higher being, if you will, uh, that has already predetermined every step that you'll take. And so that can, that can often affect the way that you practice your spiritual disciplines. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is evangelism. Oftentimes when you think about uh, speaking to someone or maybe not speaking to someone, the weight of responsibility is something that you feel even at the moment. If I don't speak to this person, for example, then, then it's possible that this person may be on his way to hell, and because of my negligence, this person is going to be lost. Uh, in other words, you, you might feel that if this person ends up in hell, it's your fault. Uh, and that has something to do with your understanding about God, whether you uh, know it or not. But another spiritual discipline, another spiritual practice is this, this uh, practice of prayer. Uh, the scripture commands us to pray. Um, and we see examples in the Bible that um, show that prayer was part of the people of God. This was a spiritual practice, practice that they uh, constantly uh, participated in. This is seen also in the Old Testament. So prayer is very much a, a big part of our life as Christians. But considering the fact that God is sovereign and that, uh, and we confess this because we see in Scripture very clearly that God is in full control and nothing happens apart from his will. But when you try to reconcile with that with um, the commandment and requirement for us to constantly pray and to pray without ceasing, it, it, it almost makes you think, what's the point of prayer if God is absolutely sovereign and in control and has determined every step um, in, the, in this existence. You've heard the phrase, prayer changes things, right? 
uh, you find plaques even um, and signs and, and pieces of art that says prayer changes things. There's sermons that have been preached, countless prayers prayed even, under, the, under this assumption that prayer changes things. Now, if prayer changes things, how can we believe that God is sovereign and all-knowing, as I mentioned? How can we hold that he has his plans all worked out and these plans cannot fail? If not a bird falls from heaven without his decree, if we live and move and have our being under his sovereignty, if he works out everything in conformity with his purposes and his will, and you see those, those ideas in Ephesians 1.11, then in what meaningful sense can we say that prayer changes anything? Now, certainly, there is um, little point in encouraging people to be fervent and passionate in prayer, right? Your encouragement even has been ordained. And if they listen to you and offer fervent prayer to that, that too has been ordained as well. The entire business becomes pretty phony, if you will, if this is how you think of of these things. Surely there is no other reasonable option if that's the case. We simply have to conclude that God cannot be utterly sovereign, absolutely omnipotent. If God is not absolutely sovereign, and here goes this line of reasoning, maybe the reason he does not answer your prayers as you would like is that he can't. Uh, suppose you're praying for the conversion for your, of your sister. Right? You have a family member that's lost and you're praying for their conversion. If God has already done everything he can to bring her to himself, but somehow she won't give in, why bother asking him to save her? Right? If God has everything set, then what's the point of praying to God to save your sister? If God has already done everything, what's the point of it? Uh, he's already uh, preordained the steps. Isn't it a little uh, indecent to pressure God, even with our prayers, to do more when he has already done what he uh, has determined to do? Or one might reason this way. They might say that God is powerful, but somewhat aloof, right? Unwilling to do very much until we ask him. So this is sort of a, a, a kind of understanding about God that says, if I don't pray, it's absolutely not going to happen. Uh, and you and you think, in in the you think of it in a way that um, makes God this um, free agent within our world, within our bubble, and depending on how we um, call upon Him is is the way that He moves and acts. Um, that's a that's a, a certain kind of way that people have understood God. Uh, if that's the case, then of course he grants some requests but turn, downs, turn down others simply because he can't do any better. So prayer does change things after all, even if the price of these sorts of reasoning is that God is not as powerful or and therefore not as trustworthy as we might have thought. In fact, if God is not really all-powerful, one might wonder if in darker moments, how can we be certain that he will make the universe turn out all right in the end? Others argue that the only change prayer affects is within the person praying. Because I pray for certain things, this is how they would think, I focus on them and strive for them, and I myself am changed. So this is the idea that prayer really doesn't change anything, all it does is change me. Um, So God, you know, they acknowledge the sovereignty of God, but 
prayer becomes, um, even, even when you uh, offer petitions to God and you say, God, help me in this, or can you grant this? Um, it's really just an experience that you have where you're being changed and nothing is changing uh, in heaven. Uh, so again, uh, the idea is that you may pray to do a good job at work, and because you're praying along those lines, um, your determination is reinforced, and you are slightly changing for the better, and the result may be that your work really improves. So you're saying, God, help me in, this, in my job. I'm struggling. And as you pray... All you're really doing is bringing these things to mind and it's sort of manipula- manipulating you to do better. And it, it, it really wasn't a prayer. It was just a way for you to uh, reinforce um, some of the things that you already want. But the only immediate change effect, affected by the prayer is you, if that's the case. Um, this means it does not really matter if God is out there at all. Prayer is nothing but a psychological crutch. Prayer is all right, but only for the weak and insecure people. And that's the train of thought with that. Ironically, some of us adopt the Christian version of that same approach. Um, We, too, sometimes say that what prayer changes is primarily the person who prays. But we we attribute this change not to psychology, but to obedience. And we'll say, well, it's commanded, so you do it, and that's the end of it. And you don't make any connection with the fact that God is listening to your prayer. And it's actually God is receiving these prayers. Sometimes we, we approach prayer that way. Um, again, we, we too sometimes say that what prayer changes is primarily the person who prays. And there's some truth in that. But we attribute this change not to psychology, but to obedience, as I mentioned. And, and the only meaningful prayer we may think is, not my will, but yours be done. And because we know and trust that God is a sovereign God and everything is predetermined, we almost pray in a way that lacks faith because really the only meaningful prayer with that in mind is, well, God, whatever your will is, let it be done. And therefore, everything that I just asked for is kind of irrelevant. It's just not worth praying. I'll say it anyway because you ask us to do it, but and then you sort of put everything under this this. Uh, place of, well, your will be done anyway. And so there's, there's a lack of faith that God can, in fact, answer, answer your prayers and that God, in fact, li- listens to them. Um, not my will, uh, but your will be done. And if that is answered, then we have become better attuned with the will and purpose of God. And, and that is a good thing. Yet, despite the importance of praying that God's will be done, it is certainly not the only prayer in the Bible, Right? In the scriptures, believers not only pray for themselves, they also ask for things. And sometimes, especially us as people who really emphasize the sovereignty of God, sometimes it's kind of weird asking God for things, like personal things, like, God, you know, I'm really struggling with my job. And the first thing that comes to mind is, well, I'm not, wor- I'm, it's not, I'm not worthy to, to bring God these types of petitions. Uh, but you see that in Scripture, where people bring real petitions and ask God real things that, that are related to something that, uh, something that they may be going through, some particular struggle. In the Scriptures, believers not only pray for themselves, they also ask for things. They ask God to change circumstances. 
to give them things, even to change his mind. There's prayers in the Bible that ask God, God, would you change your mind? And us here, where we've, we've gone through um, studies on the doctrine of God, and hopefully we'll, we'll get to some of that in the future too as well, we, we confess that God doesn't change his mind, right? God knows all things. Uh, he doesn't really ultimately change his mind, although you do see instances in Scripture where it says that God relented or, or took back or regretted uh, making creation. But God in his essence... We, 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 we see that language as it relates to man, but God in his essence doesn't change his mind. God in who he is is unchangeable, right? We confess that as well, that God does not change. He's immutable. But again, you do see those kinds of prayers in Scripture for God to change his mind. They ask God to change circumstances, to give them things, and even to change his mind. And in many passages, as we shall see, and I'm going to show you some some verses, we're told that God, on hearing such prayers, relented. Which is not much different than just saying that that he changed his mind. But if God changed his mind, why do other passages of Scripture picture him as a steadfast, reliable, and immutable God? If you're like me, you can really hurt your head thinking about this sort of thing. Uh, But the Bible insists that we do pray, that we pray. It urges us to pray. It gives us examples of prayer. Uh, Something has gone wrong, in fact, in our reasoning. If in our reasoning, it leads us away from prayer. And this is where we have to learn how to be balanced with two truths that the scriptures promote. Two, Two important facts about God and about prayer that the scripture does teach. And you'll see it in your handout. There's two points there. And the first point there is God is absolutely sovereign, but his sovereignty never functions in scripture to reduce human responsibility. Okay, so the way that the scriptures talk about God is that he's absolutely sovereign and there isn't anything that is outside of his full control. Even... I dare say, bad things, tragic things. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. But it doesn't reduce human responsibility. It doesn't remove human responsibility at all. It doesn't make us robots, as as often people who have really pushed against this idea that God is absolutely sovereign in every shape and form, um, have said, well, that makes us robots, that we, we, we're just acting out in some play, and we're puppets, and really my feelings and my desires and my temptations are, are, are not even real. They're just part of God's big plan. But again, he's sovereign, but it does not... As the confession says, it does not do violence to our human freedom. And then number two, you'll see the second point there. Human beings are responsible creatures. That is, they choose, they believe, they even disobey, they respond, and there is moral significance in their choices. However, human responsibility never functions in Scripture to diminish God's sovereignty or to make God absolutely contingent. 
You see that? So the first one said that God is absolutely sovereign, but it doesn't do violence to human freedom. And then that second point says that we are absolutely responsible. Uh, we choose, we believe, we even disobey, we respond, and there is moral significance in our choices. Yet, it doesn't do damage to the fact that God is absolutely sovereign and in full control. Now, you can look at those things and they, you can say to yourself that those two are actually absolutely contradictory. They cannot coexist. They're not compatible. How can God be 100% sovereign and we be uh, free enough uh, to where our choices matter and, and we are held responsible and there is moral significance in the things that we do? It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. And you'll see in Scripture that they can coexist. The big question, though, is how do they coexist, right? Um, if you look at a, a train track, right, you have two, um, two parts of it, right, the top and the bottom, if you think about them as two railings in which the train um, travels on and it rides on and it stays on that track. They, they, can, they can coexist together. They, they move and they move us in, in a direction that God desires, Yet it, the uh, responsibility, the human responsibility, is still a part of that uh, moving. But again, this is all to say that there is mystery on how they are able to coexist. But we do see in Scripture that they actually do coexist. They're compatible and they work together. And we're going to look at some passages to, to prove that. Um, okay. Uh, part of our problem is believing that both are true, right? We tend to use one to diminish the other. We tend to emphasize one at the expense of the other. Uh, but uh, responsible, a responsible reading of the scriptures uh, prohibit, prohibits uh, being reductionistic to choosing one over the other. Um, we might begin by glancing at the large picture. Proverbs 16 pictures God as so utterly sovereign that when you... When you or I throw a, a die, uh, which side comes up is determined by God, right? 16.33. This is Proverbs 16.33. It says, The Lord works out everything to its proper end, even the wicked for the day of disaster. So God is, has so determined things that um, uh, everything is working to its proper end according to God's uh, secret will. You also see in Proverbs 16, verse 9, it says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. See that? Another one, Psalm 115, verses 2 to 3. Why do, the, why do the nations say, where is their God? And it follows, our God is in the heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. And according to Jesus, if the birds are fed, it's because the Father feeds them. You see that in Matthew 6, 26. If wildflowers grow, it's because God closes the grass. Thus, God stands behind this so-called natural process, right? God has created nature in such a way that it works in accordance to his will. And um, it almost seems independent from God, yet God is sustaining all of it, right? That's why uh, biblical writers prefer to speak of the Lord sending rain as opposed to saying, hey, look, it's raining. They say, God is sending rain. 
the prophets understood the sweep of God's sway, right? You see in Jeremiah 10, 23, it says, Lord, I know that people's lives are not their own. It's not for them to direct their steps. So there's a strong um, emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Psalm uh, 135, verse 6 says, The Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on earth, in the seas and all their depths. And the passage in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 3 through 14, I think is strong as any. It uh, It says that God works out everything in conformity with the purposes, or with the purpose of his will. So everything is serving his purpose, his secret will. Uh, And in some mysterious way, and without being tainted with evil himself, there are certain things that I think are harder to grasp, but they're true nonetheless. We see in Scripture that God has stood behind unintentional manslaughter. Exodus 21, verse 13. God has been behind family misfortune. You see that in Ruth, chapter 1, verse 13. God was behind national, disaster, uh, national disasters. You see that in Isaiah 45, verses 6 through 7. God was even behind uh, some personal grief that you see the people in Scripture face. You see that in Lamentation 3, uh, 32 to 33, and then further on, 37 and 38. Even sin, uh, 2 Samuel 24, 1, and 1 Kings 22, uh, 21. Not that he was the cause of the sin, uh, by no means. Um, but he was allowing, he, um, he had allowed this for the purposes of his will to take place. Uh, and the most popular one is the fall, right? Uh, Adam in the garden. Yet in none of these cases, in none of these cases, was human responsibility ever diminished. So there was never a person who went in history and grabbed the gun <laughs> to kill a family member and um, was like, God, stop. You know, I, I, I don't want to do this. God, stop it. And, you know, there was no one who ever acted in such a way that, um, that was, in a sense, out of his control, out of his will, out of his own um, choice. God never uh, interferes with that. There are countless of passages where human beings are, and this is on the contrary, we, we just talked about the sovereignty of God now uh, focusing on human responsibility. There are many passages where human beings are commanded to obey, to choose even, to believe, and they're held accountable if they fail to do that. Uh, God himself offers moving pleas to incite us to repentance, because he finds no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Um, I have many verses there, if you want to write them down, that um, really show human responsibility in an explicit way. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Uh, 60, uh, also Isaiah 65, verse 2. Uh, Lamentations 3. Verses 31 through 36. And then just one more. Uh, Ezekiel 18, verses 30 through 32. Uh, in, the, in his day, Joshua, 
can challenge Israel in these words. He'll say, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua 24, 14 through 15. So there's this willful desire to serve God. Uh, the, commanding in, uh, the commanding invitation of the gospel itself, if you think about as we preach the gospel, when the, when the gospel is preached rightly and effectively, it's preached in such a way that requires the person to respond. I think, that, I think that's the best way to, uh, to preach the gospel. Not only speaking about the history of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, the revelation of Christ even in the Old Testament, those are important factors. But there is... Um, application to the gospel, right? The gospel is, is history, right? It's really explaining who Jesus is about his life, about his death, and about his resurrection. But when you tell this to someone, they're like, okay, thanks for giving me a little small history class about who you say the Messiah is. It means nothing to me. Well, a good way to preach the gospel, and I think the right way, is to help people see how it applies to them. What, what they're required to do, how they are to respond. And so you could, you could even see that the gospel itself assumes responsibility. Um, in a popular verse, you, you've, you, you all know, um, it, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. As the scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. You see that in Romans 10, verses 9, also verse 11. Of course, none of that jeopardizes God's sovereignty, but there's still uh, uh, an action or reaction or response from the person who's hearing the message. Now, we know it begins from God's regenerating work in the heart, but there's sort of proof of that in in a human sense, in an earthly sense. We can see response from the person, an act of obedience, if you will. But again, none of that jeopardizes God's sovereignty. And and only a few verses earlier from what I just read in Romans, um, we find the apostle quoting scripture. He's quoting Exodus 33, 19, to prove that God has mercy on whomever he he desires to have mercy on, and he hardens whoever he desires to harden. So so they work together, responsibility, human responsibility, and God's sovereignty. Um, I want to look at some passages here. Look at Genesis 50, 19 through 21. Actually, through 20. I put 21 there. but <clears throat> It says, But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, uh, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive, as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. This is, I think, a great example of two things happening, right? His brothers betrayed him. Yet the betrayal um, worked in God's providence to serve a greater purpose, the purposes of God, to preserve a, a people. Right? After the death of their father, Jacob's son approached Joseph and begged him not to take revenge on them for having sold him into slavery. And Joseph's response, I think, is instructive, right? It says, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? 
You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done. Um, so, again, God's sovereignty in this event, issuing in the place to save millions of people from starvation during the famine years, it doesn't reduce the brother's evil to just human responsibility, but you see their evil plot um, was used by God. And the other way around, too, uh, their actions didn't make God contingent to them, dependent upon them. God is working freely here. I want to look at another verse here, Isaiah 10, verses 5 through 19. Can I get a volunteer to read that, actually? So this is just an example of how, uh, this is more of a broader example, um, not so much an individual um, 
situation where you see God being sovereign and man still being uh, responsible, this kind of zooms out with a nation, right? And here we find God using a, a military power as if it were nothing more than a tool, right? An ax or a saw to accomplish his purposes uh, of bitter judgment, right? God is using a nation to attack and destroy his own people of God. And he's using that as a form of punishment, right? Um, that does not mean that the Assyrians are not responsible for their actions, right? So God is choosing the Assyrians to attack the people of God. He ordained it to be that way. He's causing these things to happen. But the Assyrians, who are the people that God is using to attack his own people of God, uh, it, it, it doesn't leave them from being not responsible uh, for the actions that they're doing as they attack the people of God. Uh, another, in other words, uh, just to give you a more common example, God, if he wishes to bring about judgment, let's just say to this church, God forbid, right? But if he, desi he desires to bring judgment to this church and bring some sort of correction, he can use the persecution of unbelievers. Uh, he can bring unbelievers here to persecute us that would cause uh, some sort of purging or correcting um, to help us to see um, what it means to be a Christian in, in a better light, right? Uh, if he desires to punish us, he can use different means, different groups of people to come uh, and these would be as his tools um, to, to cause some, some damage to us for the sake of his bigger purposes. But it doesn't relieve the people that he's choosing to attack us. It doesn't relieve them from responsibility before God, right? It, it, God will hold them accountable even for his using them. Uh, because God, on a normal basis, uses means... Um, let's just say a, a human or a group of people, he uses that as a means to accomplish his purposes. But it, it, he usually uses um, the disobedience of that group of people, the sin that's among that group of people, and he uses, them, he uses that as a way to uh, empower them to do uh, damage, if you will. So another example would be that if he desires to punish us, that the idolatry that's in the world... God can use idolaters to come in and influence this church, and we are given over to idolatry as well. Nonetheless, all idolaters would pay for their idolatry, so it doesn't relieve any party from their human responsibility or, or their actions. But that's just a way to demonstrate that God is in full control, but no party is exempt from being judged by God. Hopefully that's clear. Um, I'll do one more example in Scripture. I'll read it myself. John 6, 37 uh, through 40. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. And so in this context of the, of the bread of life discourse that Jesus is having here, He declares, right, all those that the Father has given me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. 
And this means, on, on the one hand, that all the elect, right, all of God's people are viewed as a gift that the Father gives to the Son. And on the other hand, that once they have been given to Jesus, Jesus, for his part, will certainly keep them in. Right? You see, he will never drive them away. And that this is, and this is the meaning of, of the last part in verse 37. Uh, I think it becomes more clear when, when we follow that same argument. Um, it says, I will never drive them away. And Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to, the, to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall not lose uh, none of all those he has given me, but raise them up in the last day. And so here, God is seen as so sovereign in the process of salvation that the people of God are said to be given as a gift by the Father to the Son, while the Son preserves them uh, to the last day when, when he promises that he'll raise them up. <clears throat> Nevertheless, this does not make these privileged people uh, irresponsible or robots or um, without any part of this process. It says uh, The next verse, I think, describes the same people in a different way. It says uh, in uh, verse 40, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, Jesus is speaking about God's electing the saints and that Jesus will keep them and none will be um, left behind. None will be snatched out of his hand. But further on in that same chapter, he's saying, uh, he who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And so you have, on the one hand, God electing and sovereignly keeping the elect and on on the other hand, on a human level, people responding and seeking after Christ. Uh, then they're working both together. And, and it doesn't do violence to either God's sovereignty or human responsibility. Uh, let me close by saying this. Um, fast forward here. Uh, granting that, that the Bible insists that God is utterly sovereign and human beings are morally responsible, uh, let us grant that God himself is both transcendent and personal. All right? Um, the question we must ask ourselves ourself is, uh, how can we assure that these complementary pairs operate in the right way in our lives? I think the answer is simple. We must do our best to ensure that these complementary truths function in our lives in the same way they function in Scripture. The moment that you start becoming imbalanced is the moment that you, you start becoming unbiblical. Right? When you, when you rely on the sovereignty of God so much so that you do away with your responsibilities as a Christian to pursue holiness, to pray, and to ask God for things, you're, you're, you're understanding God wrong. And I get it. There's, there's mystery on how responsibility and God's sovereignty work together. But as a Christian and as a person who believes God's word, we have to believe both. And we should be content and be okay with accepting mystery. And in fact, I think that's, a, that's the problem with a lot of Christianity today, that we're trying to solve every mysterious case of the Bible and say, you know, well, we have to keep digging. And if this part is something I can't understand, then I have to do away with Christianity as a whole. We have to allow mystery. And the reason why we have to allow mystery, because one of the things that we confess about God is that he's incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. And that's a good thing, 
because the moment that you're able to fully comprehend God is the moment that it, you start thinking about God wrong because God is an eternal being and there's aspects of, about God's essence that you can never understand because of your creaturely mind even categories that you don't have uh, you know that hasn't been revealed to you so be okay with mystery but also be obedient to the word don't fall in either extreme don't fall in the extreme of God is so sovereign that is, there's no point in praying um I'll say this, and this could be a, a good exercise, a good homework. Um, select one of these passages, and I'm going I'm to read you some scripture verses. I'm not going to read the verse itself. I'm just going to tell you the, the verses. If you can write these down, and what you should try to do and practice doing is explaining what these passages mean, Okay. So the first one would be Genesis 50, verses 19 through 20. Try to read that passage and try to explain what that passage means, maybe to your spouse or maybe to a friend or another brother in Christ or sister in Christ. Because when you explain those passages, it'll help you to exercise how to, how to really put these concepts together. Um, Isaiah 10 Verses 5 through 6. Another one is Acts 4, verses 23 through 30. And the last one, Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. So take those verses, take one, maybe two, and try to explain what those passages mean. Um, to someone, and that'll help you put into practice how to think through some of these concepts. God is sovereign, and we're uh, responsible, and then they don't crash. Yes, sir? Bill, just real quick, the two scriptures come to mind. Yeah. I don't know the order in which it comes in that says that, and, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and it also says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Excellent, yes. You know, Excellent. and also, um, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Excellent. If you have the will, the desire, a desire to pray, God's will put it in. Whatever you, you will, God put it in the beginning. Yes. Amen. Lest we take any you know any credit for right. it. Right. Amen. So, and then and to work it out, he's the one who's working it out through us. Amen. Those are perfect examples of how he's how both things are happening at the same time. Excellent. Yeah, any, any other thoughts or comments? I, I got maybe time for one or two. Yeah? Yeah, Both things happening there. George? Yes. This is overused, so it can be overused easily. Yeah. But the secret things do belong to God. Amen. Amen. You, you call it a mystery. Yeah, that's right. It's all the word calls it the secret things. In other words, we know His will. We may not know His perfect will. Right. Amen. Excellent. It's a good reminder there to be content in that. Yeah. 
Let me go ahead and close out. Well, thank you all. Gracious Father, we, uh, we thank you, Lord, that you have uh, allowed us to think through some of these things, some tough things to, to, uh, to think about, yet we see that these things are revealed in your word, that you are sovereign and that we are still responsible. And so, Father, we pray that we would be balanced in the way that Scripture is balanced in our understanding. Uh, help us to um, live with a trust, but also with a fear. Um, thank you that you have revealed these things to us. May we continue to understand these things more um, and help us, Lord, to walk in the way that you've called us to walk. And may that be reflected in our prayer, that as we pray to you, we acknowledge both realities and that we never fall into a sinful extreme. Uh, cleanse us, help us to pray rightly uh, as the Lord has taught us, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.